It is good to see you uh, here again this morning. And uh, before we continue with our series in Second Corinthians, I just want to make mention of the great day that we had yesterday, some of us at Clovercrest Shopping Centre, where over 200 uh, tracks and calendars were handed out and uh, carols were sung by the excellent voices that we have in our church. And so it was a, uh, a good uh, morning all around. And so um, we had a good reception and, uh, and there was just good, a good uh, feel about the place all around. It's amazing how we're coming accepted down there. Um, just seeing one or two of the businesses which I went round and, and, um, and they're coming. Oh, that's right, I remember you coming last year and giving us one of these. And so uh, it's good to have that rapport with them where, uh, where we can give them this gift. It's not only a calendar, but it was an excellent tract that was written uh, about the gospel and, and to do with the gospel. So praise the Lord for that. And uh, just another announcement. Um, this afternoon, there's, the ladies are having a craftsnoon in the back room there. Okay, so any lady who wants to come in and enjoy an afternoon of craft, and uh, that's at three o'clock to five o'clock uh, this afternoon. So please be aware of that. And also, before we pray, I just want to make mention: um, uh, Karen's dad uh, has uh, taken a turn for the worse, and so that's why they're not here today. Um, so he is in hospital on chemotherapy, but the chemotherapy's evidently uh, plunged him to a, a lower place in his health uh, list. So uh, pray for Karen's dad. And also Axel, little Axel, you know, that little fellow that runs around here that we all love. Uh, he has quite a serious operation this week and a number of things. This is, I think this is about his ninth operation where he's been under since he was he's four years old. And so he's an ongoing um, mission, that boy. So uh, this week he goes under again uh, on Thursday. So pray for him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks that it is well with our souls. It may not be too well with us physically and on the outside and we do suffer the extremities of ill health at times. And, and, uh, but Father, that's okay because we know that our sins have been forgiven and we have eternal life in and through our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Father, what a simple but a profound message that we are made sons and daughters of the living God by grace alone, through faith alone. And we rejoice in that. And here we are this morning as believers thanking you and being caught up in that. But Father, we do suffer externally and in this regard we pray for Karen's dad and Karen and Mike themselves and that you would uphold them in this time as they uh, take responsibility and rightfully so for Karen's dad and so we just pray out of this that glory will come to you. Also thinking of little Axel and uh, we pray for him that you would uh, pull him through okay and we just thank you for his little life uh, that according to the experts shouldn't even be a little life. But Lord, we just thank you. Pray for Damien and Laurie as well as they go through this time that you would uphold them and strengthen them and Joaquin and Talia. And so Lord, we just ask that you would be with us, encourage us all now as we open the scriptures and keep us humble, the speaker foremost, and open up your word to us, we pray. These things we would ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.
Okay, if we can open the Bibles up to to Second Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at it from verse, chapter two, from verses twelve to seventeen this morning. And um, this is an interesting topic. When I first read it, I was sort of one of those passages, sort of woof like that, you know. And uh, but it does us good to uh, dig a little deeper, which I pray the Lord will help us understand this morning. Okay, we'll read it. To, I'll read it and follow along with me. I'm reading from the NASB in Second uh, Corinthians chapter two and verse twelve. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when the door was opened for me in the Lord. I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of knowledge, of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To, one, to the one an aroma from death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Trust the Lord will add a blessing to his word this morning. As we look into this uh, section of scripture, it may seem to us like an isolated topic from the rest of the greater narrative of Second Corinthians, but I can assure you it is not. It is not. What Paul is doing here is he's writing a second letter, if you'll remember. It's really his fourth. Two letters are not left for us on divine record. But he has just paid a visit to the city of Corinth, to the church of Corinth, and it was a painful visit as described in chapter 2 of this book. In other words, he went there with some very severe words. He had to really deal it out to some of the believers who were really not behaving and responding to his ministry as from the Lord as they should have. And so they caused them a whole heap of grief. Some Christians do that, right? You know, this church at Corinth was not perfect. It reminds me of me. It reminds me of every Christian. None of us are perfect. And so what Paul does in this letter is he's reiterating some of the pain and the reasons why he delayed a visit to them. He said he was going to visit and then he delayed it and of course, that just gave them ammunition to say, ah, you're insincere. You say one thing, you do another, and you speak out of both sides of your mouth kind of thing. They accused him of all this sort of stuff. And so he's writing this letter explaining, though, that this is not the case. And, and, and during this time, he so loved the church that these dear people caused him so much grief. And he experienced many difficulties as he dealt with this church. And as we've looked at from chapter 1 right through to verse 11 of chapter 2, we have seen Paul had to defend his personal conduct to the Corinthian church, those whom he had ministered to. And from 2.12 that we've read today, right through to end of chapter 7, he defends his ministry. So there's a big chunk of scripture we've got to go over the next few months, right? 
He defends his ministry. The very gospel that he was called to preach and anointed to preach, he needs to defend it to this church and to us here this morning. So though not isolated, we must remember, though not isolated, this section from 2.12 right through to 7, it is a digression. He digresses from his main thought that he, lead, he begins here. In other words, this section from 2.12 right through to 7 is in parenthesis. I call it an apostolic digression. So he's allowed to do that, you know. He's allowed to do that. And it's still the inspired word of God. And so he begins this discretion, he, dig, he begins this digression, I should say, by describing his utter discouragement when not finding Titus. We find that in 2.13. He is discouraged. He doesn't find Titus like he wanted to do. And it's not until chapter 5 and 6, in, in, uh, verse 5 and 6 in chapter 7, does he pick up that same thread again. So everything else in between is sort of this apostolic digression. This is what he says in chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. For when, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So there you have it. That's in chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. But this inspired digression is so rich in gospel truth, folks. Not one of those footnotes that we often put on letters or... Everything. It teaches us much. Because it's in these next five chapters, as Paul defends his ministry, he also lays open the very heart of this great epistle. We learn so much in this digression about the ministry of, as he calls it, the new covenant. Here we will see Paul's declaration of what the gospel of God is and how his servants are to live and to serve their master. That's what we see in this inspired digression. Now as we think about that, as we think about living and serving Jesus Christ, no believer escapes from that, right? We're all servants of the master in different ways and different means. And as we think about that, we, like Paul, know by experience it's not all easy. As a matter of fact, being a faithful servant of God, life can be downright depressingly discouraging at times. Paul knew this as he experienced the emotional and physical pain right throughout his ministry. And I don't have to reiterate any of all that. Some of it, we've all been going through the book of Acts and we've seen some of that. He was no stranger to the, to the discouraging realities of being a servant of God. He was no stranger to that. But apart from the, the external and all the physical stuff that was heaped upon him, he also wrote of what I call depression material that came from the churches. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul wore it all. 
his concern and love for the churches of God that he had planted, he felt every fiber of their being. So Paul knew an experience like we probably never will, the heartache and the turmoil that is part and parcel of faithfully serving the Lord. As I said before, his last painful visit to Corinth speaks for itself. Evidently there, someone got up and either verbally abused them or did something, we're not told the exact details, but it was an embarrassing and a difficult situation where it's most likely a brother was excommunicated for that. We dealt with that last time. And on top of all that, you will know about the, the difficulties he's experienced in Ephesus and he, there was a riot over it and, 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 and all the gospel ministry was at stake in that point because if that fell apart in Ephesus, that would put at risk all the gospel ministries right across the lands that he had been in missionary. So it was really tough for Paul. But of all the churches, folks, of all the churches, there was none like the Corinthian church that broke his heart like they did. The deepest hurt came because of Paul's intense love for this church, which ironically gave them the potential to hurt him most. Amazing that, isn't it? It's quite often the ones, that hurt, hurt, ones we hurt the most are the ones we love the most. The well, ones that hurt us most are the ones that love us most, and vice versa. The Corinthians' immaturity in the faith, their prideful behaviour, their abuse of their freedoms in Christ, their abuse of their spiritual gifts, their indifference to sin, their challenge to his apostolic ministry, plus a whole host of other worldly and sinful displays, these, all, these things all added to the heap of depressing discouragement in the apostles' life. And on top of all this, if that wasn't enough, false prophets had crept into the church that he had planted and spent 18 months nurturing. And now these false prophets endeavoured to undermine Paul's character, undermine his ministry. This broke Paul's heart. Especially then hearing that some of the believers that he had seen one to the Lord were caught up in all this deception. Now, folks, all this is the cause of Paul's state of mind. And he gives us an inside view of how he was coping when he said in 2 Corinthians 1.8, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 7.5, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. Who said depression only hits the weak guys? Well, here we have it. God's appointed apostle way down under the huge physical and emotional strain. So our next question can rightly be, how does he cope? How does he handle it? Well, let us learn from this man of God who followed Christ. And my message this morning comes under two simple headings. The first one is the reality of dismal discouragement from verses 12 to 13 and the second one will be the encouragement of triumphant victory running through to the end of verse 14, 17. So first of all, the reality of dismal discouragement. I'm sure there have been times in your life where nothing sits easy 
until an issue that has caused you concern or some angst has been settled, right? It kind of churns away at you. You know, like when you're hearing some disturbing news about someone you love maybe, but the news is sketchy, it doesn't really stack up, and so you churn over things. Or maybe concern over your children who, who, who rebel against the gospel and you as a parent feel like an inadequate stranger in their lives. Many parents feel that. Or maybe dismal discouragement hits home when a, when a church you love fails to minister and to show reciprocal love as it should for whatever reason. There are scores of reasons to experience dismal discouragement. But whatever happens, what really does happen in these situations, can I have that air conditioner turned right down? Everything's blowing apart here, please. What happens in these situations when we get discouraged is that we tend to focus on the unknown. Okay? You tend to focus on the unknown. Our mind flicks into overdrive and what it does, it tries to fit all the pieces together usually unknown pieces. And it begins to play havoc and we try to fill the gaps, but we find that it never, ever works. And the reason being is, it's because our concerns become despairingly entrenched in grappling with what is mostly unknown. Folks, that's the recipe for dismal discouragement. It really is. And that is exactly where the mighty apostle was at this time of his life. His concern, his many gaps, the unknown of the Corinthian believer's response to his severe letter that was hand-delivered by Titus, you remember. This was eating up. He wanted to know, he wanted to know, he wanted to know what and how they were going to respond to this letter that he had sent by Titus. So what does he do? He needs to know how these, this Corinthian church was holding up. So what does it do? I will go to Troas and I'll meet Titus there on his return. Kind of speed things up a bit, you know. Why wait back in Ephesus? You know, let's go to Troas. Troas, by the way, was an ancient city. Many of us will remember it as the ancient city of Troy, you know, where they had that big wooden horse. That's the same place. And so this is where he went. And it was a familiar place, by the way, to the Apostle Paul. This was his third visit there. The first we read of in Acts chapter 16 on a second missionary journey. And it seemed that he only passed through the city of Troas, it seems, as we read that chapter 16, and um, on his way to the Macedonian, an obedience to the Macedonian call, remember? That vision that he saw in the night. It seems that he only passed there. And because there's no record of him planting a church at this point, But on his way home, he stops there for a whole week and he ministers to the gathered saints. So obviously there had been, whether it was him or someone else, there had been a church planted in Troas. And even some details written about that church. And you'll remember this, some with a little humour. He was preaching all night. I won't do that today. And there was a guy who was asleep sitting on the windowsill, you know, really laid back and he fell out and killed himself. So Paul goes out there and raises them back to life again. So don't go to sleep because I can't do that, right? And uh, so that's what happened to Troas. That's what happened to Troas. Well, here is now Paul 
for the third time in Troas. So why did he go there? Two reasons. One to meet Titus, as we see at the end of verse 13, for the gospel of Christ. You know, I love it when people who get in a quandary, even to the point of despair, never lose sight of the gospel. You see, Paul did not go to Troas only to meet Titus. But the gospel of Christ was right up there on his agenda. You see that? You see, the gospel is great medicine for the soul in times like these, folks. It really is. Too often what happens is we get so embedded with our own fears and concern that we lose sight of the main thing, the gospel. That is the main thing, right? It should be in the believer's life. We're a gospel-centered church that we call ourselves, so for sure we love it being the main thing. It is the main thing. And if it's not, there's something wrong. We see only one tree that we tend to do. We see only one tree in the forest. As we, we, we get so taken up with our concerns and fears, mostly of the unknown, known, it's just like seeing one tree in the forest without gathering it all in. And what happens? We become despairingly dismal. I well remember years ago, I can speak about it now because she's going to be with the Lord now. Uh, years ago, a lady who was often distraught with bouts of depression arrived early at church to faithfully serve in the kitchen like she usually did and faithfully did. But on this day, a bout of depression hit her like a wave and she began to leave for home and, so that she could curl up in her bed and pull the blinds and, and do what she normally did. But she did this just as people began to arrive at church. And she said, oh, I've got to go home very quickly as she muttered it as she out there where. And I, on inquiry, I found out what was the problem. I said, well, on your way out, do you think you could just stop at the gate maybe and, and, and just greet people and um, you've got a lovely smile and, and just greet people and show visitors who are coming in just the way because, you know, it's a bit of a nightmare back in old Parafield Gardens Church as far as pointing it away. She said, yes, I'll do that, Jeff. I'll do that. The outcome was as soon as she engaged in the gospel work of greeting people, believe it or not, her fears and her wave of depression left as quick as it came. This was on her own confession after. This is what she told me. It just, it just left her. She got her mind off the issues and focused on the gospel work of serving others and she enjoyed a great time of worship in the saints that day. My point is here, folks, Paul was not going to allow his depressing situation to bog him down. He kept the main thing the main thing. He came to Troas for the gospel of Christ. I wonder how, if that is how we conduct ourselves and view life when things get on top of us. Because things can, right? And they do. They have a habit of really trying to get on top of us. I ask this because... And allow me the freedom to do this because it really concerns me when I see people who lose sight of the gospel and that they even will stop coming to church owing to some discouraging issue that they might be experiencing. I just shake my head because exactly the opposite is needed. They should be gathering with the saints to be encouraged. Or when some burdensome conflict within and, and without hits us, it's, it's a crying shame when a selfish pity party away from church is chosen rather than the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a crying shame. 
Well, Paul, with all his dismal discouragement, he did not go down that trail, folks. He didn't. And neither should we. Amen? We must keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be dominant. It should be dominant. He's our saviour. He's our Lord. We've been singing about that. We also see that Paul didn't buckle up and huddle in his room at Troas. He probably could have done that. He would have been feeling pretty gutted and in a quandary. He didn't huddle up in his room. He preached. See that? He preached. He continued to do what God had called him to do. This is confirmed, by the way, in verse 12, where it says, A door was opened for me in the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? So here was Paul waiting to meet Titus with news from Corinth and an open door for the gospel in Troas was right there before him. This was a divinely prepared opportunity. Can't get better than that, right? This is the kind of opportunity that Paul asked people to pray for and that he prayed for himself. Remember in Colossians 4.2, this is what he asked. Pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He prayed for this very thing and asked people to pray for that very thing. And so what would the apostle do here? A door was opened to him to preach the gospel, but he had this issue. Would he preach on until the door was shut? After all, that was his usual style, right? He only stopped preaching when either he was thrown out, stoned out or locked out. That's what usually happened. But that's not what happened here. Even though the, this great opportunity for the gospel was open, what do we see him do? He up and leaves town. Why was that? It says he, he had no rest for my spirit. The Greek here is no anesis. It simply means there was no abating, there was no letting up, there was no remission, it means, or, or no relief for him internally and in his mind. Such was his situation. Such was his burden of loving concern toward these difficult believers at Corinth. What this tells us is of his intense love and commitment toward that church, right? Most of us would give them the flick, oh, well, they're not really for me, so I'll give them the flick, I'll focus on something more easier here. The Lord's opened the door, a great opportunity, I'll just keep preaching on. Forget about those Corinthians. They made their bed so they can lie in that sort of style, but not Paul. So intense was his love for them. In Paul's mind, the welfare and nurture of an established church was more important than evangelizing. Especially where a work had already been done. It's not as if he was leaving them in the lurch. There was already a church there. There was believers there. There were saints there. The gospel was still being preached there. But Paul, in his Christian freedom that he was allowed to exercise, chose to head on over to Macedonia. These were the darkest days in the apostles' life, folks. It wasn't probably an easy decision. He was torn apart with concern for this Corinthian congregation and he was deeply discouraged. And this is what verse 5 and 6 of 2 Corinthians 7 tells us. But did Paul buckle? No, he did not buckle. Did he fold? No, he did not fold. Did he burn out? No, he did not burn out. He did not throw in the towel even under such pressure. No way. Yes, he was afflicted in every way but not crushed. He was perplexed but not driven to despair, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4.8. 
So we come to another question. How on earth does he manage to hold up under such mental pressure? Good question, right? This brings us to my second point. The encouragement of triumphant victory. We see this in the last verses of this chapter. This is where Paul really hits on the cure of his dejected state. It comes out like an unexpected burst of worshipful praise. He cannot contain himself here when he's reiterating how he's, how he's feeling and, he, and defending his, his ministry to the Corinthian church. It comes out like a burst of praise when he says, but thanks be to God. You see that? He is grateful. He's thankful. Joy floods over his whole soul in stark contrast to the dismal discouragement. So what is he abundantly and joyfully thankful about? I guess if we just think about the whole story, we can understand how thankful and joyful he would be when he finally does meet Timothy, which we are told in chapter 7, verse 6 of this, of this book, of this letter, that that's what actually happens. We can understand that that would have been a joyful occasion, especially when we know, if you read that section, that Titus brought some fantastic news and how the Corinthians had repented and they were all on board again. We can understand that that was good ammunition for being thankful. But that is not the main cause for his thankful heart here, as we see. It's not the main cause. Paul was thankful because he valued and honoured that he was a minister of the gospel. That's what he valued and honoured, and that's what he was thankful for, and we can all learn from this. Paul did not look for rest and respite from his dismal discouragement through an easing up of his troubling circumstances. Matter of fact, they were to get a whole heap worse from now on, right to the day of his execution. His cure for discouragement was having a thankful heart. His focus was not on himself. He didn't dive into the doldrums and cry, woe is me, but placed his mind fairly and squarely on God, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort that we read about in chapter 1, verse 3. And immediately as Paul refocuses, Paul is filled to overflowing with gratitude as he, as he sees himself. What does he see himself? He sees himself being led by God in triumph in Christ. You see that? In other words, he sees himself as a winner. Now, I don't know about you, but I love backing a winner's sporting field. We were able to do that in the World Cup, but certainly not be able to do it for New Zealand on the cricket. But anyway, you all settle for the World Cup and rugby. I love backing winners, and we all like to be a winner. Folks, if you're a believer here today, you're on the winning side. Be encouraged in that. And Paul rejoiced in that. He was thankful to God because of that. And what Paul does here to illustrate this is he uses a word picture. And he uses the Roman triumph that we saw on the opening slide. A triumph is not an adjective here. The triumph is a noun. It's a naming of a procession that they did and conducted in Rome. And this upbeat event happened when after a battle, the victorious Roman general is given a triumph parade through the streets of Rome where he and all his soldiers march before the emperor and are saluted and honoured as the victorious ones. Not anyone could have this. It was probably only a lifetime an event for some generals. Some generals never made it because, you know, to have a triumph in your honour, you had to uh, overtake certain amounts of area of country. You had to have, uh, had to have captive certain amount of hierarchy from that 
enemy land. You had to have taken certain amount of prisoners. There's a whole lot of regulations and requirements before you are eligible for a triumph. Well, this is what Paul has in mind here, and he uses this as a, as a word picture. He sees Jesus Christ as the Victorian sovereign marching in triumph throughout the world, and Paul himself, he sees himself as being a privileged servant warrior for Christ and being part of that victorious campaign. That's what he sees. This is the picture that he's using. And so Paul is seeing this and he's wrapped up in the grandeur of Christ, victorious conqueror, and the privilege of being a servant in this divine worldwide mission. For that he was thankful. He was thankful. No room in his way of thinking for dismal discouragement when he has that big picture, that big worldview picture in his mind. And so what I want to do now for the rest of the message is point out briefly four specific reasons uh, that Paul was joyfully thankful for. The first one is be thankful because God leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but having the sovereign Lord and King of the universe as my leader kind of kills any discouragement, right? It certainly does. Having this foundational understanding should and can only bring to any servant of the Lord, no matter what happens, thankfulness. It should do. And so Paul put his mind on this truth. That in spite of all the difficulties and all the dire discouragements of life, his God always leads. Because here it says, the one who leads him. In other words, he understands no matter what happens in life, God is in control. He is sovereignly in control. And Paul sees himself marching with and in Christ in this triumphant possession. He was being led by Christ and he was right there with him. God is in control, folks. And his mission via the gospel of Jesus Christ is and will be, listen to this, triumphant. Amen? Amen. Now that's my kind of leader. That's who I want to be with. Jesus spoke of this ultimate victory himself in Matthew chapter 16, 18. You will know these words. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's our leader. Though we may, like Paul, suffer discouragement and dismal discouragement at times, do not allow that to lead you rather than Christ who is your true leader. Because I'm sad to say, sorry to say, that's what often, too often happens. And so why should we do that? Because we have a leader who leads us to victory. Our ultimate triumph is in Christ Jesus. It's certain. It's guaranteed. In the coming day, every true believer will march victorious with the king, and be captivated with a song that John, the Apostle John, speaks of in Revelation, which says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And I'm going to be there. We're going to be there as believers. Revelation 11:15. Folks, that kind of big worldview picture will replace or should replace any temporary discouragement that we might have with a thankful, amen, What is leading you? What is leading you? Is it dismal discouragement? Or is it the Lord? Being led by God in triumph in Christ is every reason to be thankful. Our second one 
A specific point is be thankful to God for the honor of wearing his gospel perfume. Which says, but thanks be to God who is in Christ who always leads us in triumph procession and and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Verse 14, I've read that from the ESV. The imagery here of fragrance still has its roots in the triumph, Roman triumph. Okay? And in the Roman triumph, it wasn't only the general, it wasn't only all the soldiers and the servants that were in the victorious campaign, but joining the procession, there would be priests of Rome who would carry and swing their senses with aromatic spices that would fill the air and invade the air and influence everything on this special occasion. The pervading aroma of this incense, it, it, that's what it did. It, it, it pervaded, it influenced the whole scene with its unique, sweet, unforgettable fragrance. Aromas do that, right? Aromas do that, good ones or bad ones. When I go riding on my bike sometimes, I love it. Especially up through the hills around the springtime. You know, you just, when you're on the open bike, you smell everything, good or bad, and, um, and the sweet smell of freshly cut hay, and you come to where cows have been walking across the road. You may not think, but that's sweet to me. And then instantly you'll know where there's been a road kill there, been lying for a couple of weeks. That's bad. But it kind of pervades, you know? It kind of pervades. Aromas do that. And I was thinking about this. I soon learned in my courting days that my wife loved a perfume called Red Door. And I soon, to come, soon came to, to love this fragrance myself, this Red Door perfume, and often have purchased it for her. But it's okay, you know, it's not in the Chanel 5 range, but, uh, so it's okay. And, um, and it, is un- it has come to me as, a, as an unforgettable sweet fragrance to the point wherever I smell that Red Door perfume, I think of my wife. Now, isn't that sweet? Folks, did you know that as faithful servants of the Lord, God has allowed you to wear his unique perfume? Perfume that only ever arises to God as a sweet reminder of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. This is the fragrance that you as genuine believers carry and wear, whereabouts, in every place. See that end of verse 13, 14. Every place. A sweet fragrance, and what does it emit? What kind of, a, what, what kind of a aroma does it emit? It emits a life-changing message of the gospel of God. That's what it emits. And everywhere, sinners smell it. Everyone smells it. But the primary audience, the primary audience is God himself. He loves it. He loves it. In other words, believers are to be a fragrance of Christ to God. Verse 15. Folks, God loves his red door, can I say? His gospel perfume. The knowledge of Christ. And he's given it to his bride to wear. He loves the gospel fragrance that permeates the courts of heaven. You know how when that happens? As we live out, as we preach out, as we testify out, something of the beauties of Christ, wherever we are, in the workplace, in the home, wherever. 
The all-powerful, triumphant gospel is the influencing aroma we are privileged to wear, to proclaim, to preach, to embody everywhere on his behalf. What a privilege that is, folks. What a privilege. Is that how you see yourself? As a wearer of God's perfume? When we faithfully manifest Christ to others around us, that becomes a sweet fragrance to God as God is the primary audience. What a privilege to be the sweet gospel fragrance to God. And for that, Paul was thankful. He was thankful. His temporary discouragement took a back seat when he considered that awesome, weighty privilege. May we learn from this. Our third one is be thankful to God for knowing the gospel divides. We see this in verses 15 to 16. What Paul does here is he continues on with his Roman triumph image This word picture. And what Paul does here, he wants his readers to see specific groups who were in attendance of that Roman procession. And the norm for such a procession was that in the middle of this triumph were chained captives of the country that had been overtaken by this victorious general. As well as there were victorious soldiers who had served in this campaign. And following after them, as we have said, Roman priests were swinging their censer pots as a sweet, fragrant offering to their pagan gods. That's what they did that for. Now to the conquering army, to the general and all his faithful soldiers who obeyed the orders of the commander, coming home from battle, this aroma to them spelled out life and victory. But what about the prisoners? They smelt the same aroma. You know what it was to them? It was the smell of death because they knew that very day, more than likely, they were going to take it to their execution. It was Alfonito for them, finished. The same aroma had different meanings to the two groups in the triumph. And Paul is saying that is exactly what the aroma of the gospel is. To one group, those who are being saved, that's what it says, that is the elect of God from before the foundation of the world, to those who repent through faith and and faith come to Christ, to this group, the gospel becomes the very sweet breath of eternal life. But to the rest, you can't have one without the other, but to the rest, it says those who are perishing... In other words, to unbelieving sinners, those who are on the road to eternal damnation, the same gospel aroma is a summons of death to death. You see that? In other words, the rejected gospel passes sentence for being dead in trespasses and sin like we all once were before we got saved. In the here and now, those who are outside of Christ, the gospel aroma is a death sentence. And if they continue on in that broad road that leads to destruction, the gospel aroma takes them from being dead in trespasses and sins in the here and now to eternal death and hell. That's a a solemn truth. The aroma of the gospel in Christ always divides folks. It always does. It determines the difference of our eternal destinies. And this has been stated in another way, by the way, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for he says, For the word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness. 
but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Same truth, different way of putting it. And so God has promised that this is what the message of the gospel will do. It will bring about God's purposes one way or other. The gospel divides. You are either a believer or an unbeliever. Believers like Paul can be, be thankful and, and like ourselves we can be thankful that we are in Christ. We're on the winning side. Now I trust you can honestly be thankful. Everyone here today can be thankful for that truth. For God takes no pleasure in the wicked but desires that all might be saved. Now in this day of grace it's time for an opportunity for those who are dead in trespasses and sin to turn from their sin and in faith trust in Jesus Christ and be taken from the broad road that leads to destruction to the narrow road that leads to eternal life. Maybe you're unsaved here today and so that you really need to really think, of, think about that and consider it and be obedient to the gospel. God loves to show mercy on repentant sinners. He loves to show mercy. But at the same time, make no mistake, because he's a perfect God in every single attribute that he has, he will perform his perfect justice on all who reject his gospel. And finally, be thankful to God for sufficient empowerment in Christ. This is verse 16 and 17. In these last two verses, Paul asks and answers an important question. Who is adequate or sufficient for these things? That's the question that kind of comes out there. The answer is simply, no one is adequate in and of themselves to minister and influence people for the kingdom of God. None of us. Whether you're Winston Churchill or or whatever with the huge amount of rhetoric, rhetoric and uh, no one in and of themselves can influence the people for the kingdom. And Paul knew this. He came to understand that when he was weak, it was then he was strong in the hands of God. He wanted some physical ailment that he felt was impeding his ability to live and carry on the gospel mission. And he prayed three times, Lord, could you remove this from me? And God says, no what? My grace is sufficient for you. God's power in him and through him was what God used to bring about his purposes in the lives of people. And we should never forget that, folks. Paul knew this of himself. That's why he said in chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So back to the question. Who was adequate for these things? And then he answers, I believe, in the negative. He answers in the negative. He kind of says this. Well, someone who's not adequate is someone who's a peddler a huckster a con artist that's what this word means here that's what this word means here in um, in, in, in in our text what does it say for we are not like many peddling the word of God what that word peddling comes from you know they used it a lot who a guy who was standing behind the bar in taverns and even in Paul's day and they would sell the liquor to people who were coming in and to be more profitable, they would water it down. They would water it down. And so instead of a litre of whiskey or whatever they're called, they'd not extend it out to two or three litres. They'd water it down. And they would deceive the patrons 
They would adulterate the true deal. This is what this word used, and Paul uses it here in the text. And so what Paul had in mind, of course, was these false teachers who had crept in back to the church in Corinth. And what they were doing is they were mixing in with divine truth of the gospel, they were mixing in it elements of paganism, but also elements of legal Judaism. In other words, they were adulterating and watering down the truth, the absolute truth of the gospel. They were peddlers, they were hucksters. And if that was the case, the word they preached, as it said here, is not from God in Christ. Folks, I didn't have to tell you that there are heaps of hucksters and pulpits who water down the truth of the gospel today, right? There are, sad to say. And I say this carefully. If you want to know one good reason to consider leaving any church, and I pray it will never be this one, is to have to listen to a kapalos, a peddler, a huckster in the pulpit who waters down the truth of the gospel. You get up and leave it. Go to somewhere where you will hear the word taught. So Paul asked the question, who is adequate? It's only those who are empowered by God. It's a minister. That means yourself, myself, every single one of us, not just the pastor, every single one of us who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, who is a born-again believer, has the power within because God is in him to minister faithfully that will be a sweet-smelling aroma to God himself. That's what Paul and his team were as God worked through them. And so Paul, in all this, he, he arose above all his discouragement by focusing on the privileges rather than the problems. May we learn to do the same when life gets difficult, amen? May God bless his word to us this morning and through us. I want to close down. I want to ask you to, to stand to your feet and um, we're going to close with a benediction. And uh, this is from this is from Hebrews chapter thirteen. And I'll pray this as a prayer, and and you'll be encouraged to say Amen if you mean this at the end. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great Shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good work to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for and ever and ever. And the people of God said, Amen. Thank you.